you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is uh, the first time, uh, well, it's a rarity that I get to kind of randomly choose a passage and choose something to preach through. Uh, uh, typically, the, the text is just, we just preach whatever's next, and Matt has to suck it up and just preach it, whether he likes the passage or not. Um, so I thought this, this morning would be fun to preach on a passage that many preachers just either ignore or preach very wrongly. And uh, so I thought we would have fun in Ephesians chapter 1. I heard a preacher a couple of years ago uh, started preaching through Ephesians. And he opens up Ephesians saying that there's a very difficult thing to discuss in Ephesians chapter 1. Very difficult subject. Lots of controversy around it. And so I just want you to know that it's there. And essentially we're not going to talk about it. And then we're going to move on. Um, so I don't know how you preach Ephesians 1 and not talk about what he's, the, this gentleman was talking about. Unless you just don't simply preach Ephesians 1 and you just move on. Um, but I think what happens in Ephesians 1 um, gives us at least some of the foundation and the basis for our hope. I think without Ephesians 1, if the rest of the Bible is true, without Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 and various other passages that speak of the same issue, without that, if the rest of the Bible is true concerning our condition, then we are without hope. That what Paul teaches, what the Holy Spirit teaches us in Ephesians 1, we are without hope if the rest of the Bible is true concerning our condition. So, what I want us to do, I, I want to read to you, you don't have to turn here, I'm just going to read Luke chapter 2 for us real quick, kind of set the, set the stage here, and I'm going to read from the NIV, because I think the translation of the NIV does a little bit better than the beloved ESV does, at least on one verse of the next 16 I'm going to read. It says this, as in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem and the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her, first son, her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good noise that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company, a heavenly host, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, praising God, not singing, by the way, hark the herald angels, praise God. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I want to pray. Father, um, let's come to you this morning. Father, you've given us such deep truths to understand, to know, to grasp, to love. Father, we know that the complexities of which you speak of in the Bible, two things, Father. We, first of all, know that it is just the tip of the iceberg to what is our God. That there is more depth that we get to explore for all of eternity. And Father, I'm thankful for that. But also, Father, we also believe this morning that you are knowable. That your word can be known. It can be understood. And that, Father, what you've chosen to reveal to us is for our good and ultimately for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that you just give us hearts to, to love your word and minds to understand it. And, and uh, Father, that you would help me to uh, teach in a way that would edify your people. Uh, and so, Father, just uh, give you praise for that. And it's in your son's name. Amen. So hope, we're in this, talking about hope this Advent season. Hope is something that all humankind longs to have. We've, we've talked about this, right? We, we all long for hope, and hope is not far off of many people's minds or many, even many people's tongues this time of year. Every man and every woman longs for something to grasp a hold of to give them hope. Something for which to look forward to, something to grab a hold of. Some people, not that one of these is better than the other, but some people have big visions of hope, lofty visions of hope, maybe something that's divine, or at the very least something that's beyond themselves. Not necessarily the God of the universe, but, but many people have the desire to hope in something beyond, so that's something that's not comprehensible, something that's beyond them, while other people have maybe smaller visions of hope, grasping to a paycheck or the hope of a promotion or the hope in the government or so on and so forth. And sadly, I sadly I have to say, I think many of us in this room settle for such doleful hope. We have small visions of hope. We settle for hope in our kids. Maybe they can be my salvation. Maybe they can deliver me. Maybe their ability in sports or their abilities in school. Maybe the fact that just maybe they'll still like me when they're older. We settle for hope in our kids. We settle for hope in our money. Maybe, maybe it can save me. Maybe my security in my money will be what carries me through to the end. 
Let me give you an illustration. For many of us, the affirmation of another person is that which we place hope in. Um, We all struggle with fear of man to some level. But for many of us, we place our hope in the affirmation of another. We long for their approval. We feel despair when we lack it. And it's sort of like salvation for us when we have it. I feel good. I feel secure. I feel hopeful. We place our hope in it really for our deliverance. And when we get it, we realize it's shallow and temporary. Who knows what they may think of us tomorrow. So as I was thinking this week and studying Ephesians 1, and as many of you know, I struggled with what to preach this past week. And, and what's funny is that I originally had planned to preach this and then struggled with it for like two days, literally. Uh, if you know my sermon preaching schedule or my prep schedule, I like to have everything done by Tuesday. Set on it on Wednesday, finalize on Thursday mornings. That's my routine. And I was at the end of Wednesday before I really had anything solid on paper. And, and I had some comments, people praying for me this week, and I'm just so thankful for that. Um, but I ended up circling back around to preach what we had originally had planned you know, a few months ago to preach on. And as I was thinking through this, I was thinking... Where, and thinking about hope in this season, and, and just, I just had to ask this question, where are the hearts, where is my heart that longs for something more? Like where, thinking of, of hearts that settle for hope in such frail and temporal things, where are the hearts that long for more? Where are the hearts, then second question to that it led me to was, where are the hearts that fight for more? Why is it my heart settles for hope in such frail, temporal things and let the hope placed in God just pass me by? Even in us as a church, where are the hearts that long for more? Where are the hearts that fight for more. Last week, last week we talked about the things we hold in our hands, right? We talked about how we struggle to find hope in the birth of our Savior because when we come to receive the gift of the Savior this time of year, our hands are full with gifts that we've fashioned, with gifts that we adore, with gifts that we treasure, that our hands are too full to receive the gift treasuring Christ in Christmas. And we talked in Philippians 1, self-righteousness, how Paul says, I counted all as loss so that I might know Him. And really what Paul is saying is all the self-righteousness by which I think I'm earning my salvation or thought that I had earned my standing before God, it is all pathetic in comparison to the gift of Christ and knowing Him. So we talked about holding these things in our hands. We saying to God, I've done this. Look at my righteousness. Behold me is really what we're saying. Our hands too full of our own glory to behold the glory of Emmanuel. God with us. So this week I, I want to take the opportunity, I, and I think Ephesians will do this, to help chip away a, maybe a, 
a little further into the stuff that we hold in our hands, and particularly this week, it may be a very unsuspecting item still lingering in our hands. And an item, maybe for many of us, that we've not ever thought about. I think in all of our hands at some point or another, even many of us on a regular basis, have the self-righteous claim of God, I chose you. We say things like, thank goodness that I chose to follow Jesus, right? Kind of get out the the back patter, right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness that I gave my life to Christ. I know, I know right now, some of you guys' hearts kind of maybe tensioning, you know, a little bit of tension coming. That's okay, just we'll resolve maybe some of that in a little bit. I think where this really shows itself, let me press in on this a little bit further, where this really shows itself, where this, where this thinking, I think, can lend itself to even sin, is when we look at another sinner such just like us and claim, at least I don't do that. Anybody ever done that? Looked at another sinner and said, man, at least I don't do that. I may do this over here, but I don't do that. Or, or we look at a lost person or someone who doesn't follow Christ and we say, well, at least I don't live like they do. I would never do that. Anybody ever said that? Everybody ever thought that? Or we look at a part of town, even in Dayton, you know, the one where all the bad people live, and we say, I could never live there. I'm not like those people. All of these thoughts, and, and I know I'm speaking generalized here, I understand that, but all these thoughts are rooted in, often, I think often rooted in some sort of prideful thought that because of some internal ability of my heart, I chose God on my own. So if I chose God on my own, then surely I would not do that or be like this person over So since I chose God on my own, this gives me some sense of pride in my own ability and my own standing. And if I chose God to begin with, then surely I can continue to choose God each day till He returns on my own. And even this past week, I looked at my own hands and seen places in my life that it's indicative that I still grasp a hold of this, God, I chose you, and aren't you thankful that I did? Why do our hearts settle to place hope in something so frail, so incompetent, and so inconsistent? So we say we worship a big God, right? We say we worship This big God, He's great God, He's a powerful God, He's mighty, He's sovereign over all things, and He will save me till the end. I mean, this picture's huge, right? I mean, it's a glorious picture of God. Then when we get to salvation, we say, oh, I I chose to place my hope in God. Thank you for the opportunity, Jesus. We say, well, Jesus is a gentleman. He stands at the door knocking and won't come in unless you let Him come in. Anybody ever thought through that? idea 
There's a hymn that sounds quite like that. Oh, sinner, won't you let him come in? Anybody heard of that song? Won't you let him come in? Anyways, I don't want to sing it for you, but I sang it growing up, man. Goodness. I mean, how, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean here, but how, how pathetic. How little hope our hearts are willing to settle for. What we need, what we were created for, is nothing less than hope in God, hope in Him for everything, including every aspect of our salvation. That's the kind of hope that we were created for. Right? Hope is a confident expectation, desire for something good in the future. But all that good in the future hinges upon items in the past and items currently and other items in the future. We should not settle for hope that is somewhat confident and maybe somewhat expectable. But yet we do. There are too many things that we can place in our hands. and So let us today keep looking for what might still be clinging to our sticky little self-righteous hands. They were meant to behold a treasure beyond our comprehension. My goal for us this morning is that our hearts would long for a hope that is glorious, magnificent, and infinitely beyond us. And that we would find this hope not in our ability to choose God first, but in God's sovereign free choosing of us. That He had to act first. Have you noticed in Luke 2.14 it says this. That's why I chose the NIV because I think it captures the Greek better than the ESV does here. He says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus came to bring peace. But even if you study the life of Jesus, did he bring peace to all men? No. He brought war to some. And he brought peace to others. The word there that captures or that we express as peace to those on whom his favor rests, the The word there is udakia. This word here is not reflecting goodwill for humans, which is the way we tend to read this passage, as if men's going to have goodwill. But it's, it's actually God's goodwill. And specifically, if you trace, do, do some study on the word there, it's specifically God's goodwill in God's elective pleasure. The pleasure that God takes in electing some and not electing others. That His choosing to express salvific love towards some. But we have the angels here are announcing what they're announcing. And I want to help us come to see this. They're announcing that finally hope has come for God's chosen Hope has come. Peace has come for them. Not only about you, but that's a hope to hang your hat on, right? That's a hope worthy of what we were created for. Listen, 
that God has chosen a people and that he has come to rescue them from divine, eternal wrath. That God has chosen and now God has acted on that choosing. That God has chosen a people and he has come to bring peace between himself and them. God has chosen. God is not this reactionary dependent upon what we do and he's just kind of sitting around twiddling his thumbs going oh well you know i really hope rusty chooses me because he'd be awesome in my kingdom he says no i've chosen rusty and he's going to be awesome in my kingdom god has chosen a people and god has chosen to make war on sin death and destruction and god has come to bring justice to himself and peace to his people Now that is a hope that I want to have. Like John Calvin said in his institutes, he said, we shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know His eternal election which illuminates God's grace by this contrast. That he does not indiscriminately adopt into the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others. It's this hope. It's hope that God would choose a people that I want us to turn our attention to this morning. That all of us, whether we've resigned to what Scripture teaches here or not, we all struggle. I know myself struggle. I struggle often with placing into my own hands the hope that I would, that I chose God. And I chose God first. I do believe that I chose God. I do believe that we choose God. But if there's anything that's reactionary, it's our response. It's our action. Sorry, response would be redundant. But if there's anything that's reactionary, it would be our action. So I want us to, uh, a desire for us to replace the frail hope that we have in our ability, even in choosing God, and we replace that with the stout, robust hope in the Father. The kind of hope that we were built to have must reside in the Father, His willing and His actions. So with that said, I want to read Ephesians 1. We are just going to work verses 3 through 6. There is so much more gloriousness in this passage. That was probably part of my struggle at the beginning of the week. Was I was looking at 1 through 14. And, uh, yeah. So, I kind of felt some of the pain that I made Robbie and Brian go through when they preached through First Peter. And then I made the executive decision to just preach through three verses. And so that's where we'll be (laughs) this morning. So Paul says, Blessed be, listen to Paul's words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is, my goodness, what is he saying? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him 
in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I feel like I should pray again. This morning, this morning I want us, I want to walk us through this text, Lord willing, and Lord willing, set some of our hearts free to enjoy the hope that your heart was meant to rest in, and for others to be encouraged to continue placing your hope in the Father, at least in the way that this passage would encourage us to do so. The first thing I think we need to see is this. We desperately need for God to choose us to hope in Christ. We desperately need. Like as in there's no hope without it. How? Why? Why do we desperately need this? I think I could sum it up in two statements. I won't because I have a lot more to preach here, but uh, look at Israel's history. They desperately needed God to choose and God to act. And then I would say, uh, just look at your, your current state of following God. Even those of us who have been redeemed still struggle with choosing God. We still struggle daily with choosing this over here, what I can put in my own hands versus choosing God over here. But from last week, I want to draw us back. From last week, when Paul was talking about his hands being empty of anything that might make him, like, might, that he might claim in order to make himself right with God, he was including even his own free choosing. At least free choosing as the initial act. If we can claim that we chose God on our own apart from His doing, then I think that's something that we can keep in our hands. That's something I can still walk around with. So why do we desperately need for God to choose us to hope in Christ? I think the first thing is this, that our hearts are darkened and our hands are empty. We think we can place things in our hands, but our hands are empty. Now, where do you where do you get that from, Matt? What are you what are you seeing here? If you look ahead, like later on, I encourage you to go back and study this. But you, if you look in Ephesians one, eighteen, let's start at verse seventeen. I know seventeen won't be on the screen, but it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? So in verse 18, what He's saying is God has called us to this hope. God has called us to this great hope, this great hope in Him. But it's not a hope dependent upon man's ability, but a hope dependent upon God's certain doing. It's based upon God's enlightening act. God, our hearts, have to be enlightened, which means that formerly they were darkened. That God had to do something to enlighten that heart. Now we don't have time to dive into this, but we call this regeneration. New birth, where God changes your heart from desiring evil to desiring Christ. New birth, that's when 
I would say new birth happens is when God regenerates our hearts. But our hearts have to be renewed in order to see the hope that He has called us to. And that's what I want us to see here. That God had to choose to act in your heart in order for you to have the hope to which you were called. And He says that in 18. What I want you particularly to see in 18 is that we need Him to choose because our hearts are dark. John 6.44, and there's multiple other passages that speak to this. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to the Father unless he walks the aisle or joins a church, right? No, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Which implies a choosing Now, before the Father draws us again, He must choose those whom He's going to draw. We'll get to more of that in a few minutes. But back to this passage. Why is it that we desperately need for God to choose? The second thing we see is that in Christ precludes provision elsewhere. Meaning, provision to choose God apart from Christ is not possible. Look at Ephesians 1, 3a. It says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Blessed us in Christ. What does he blessed us with? Blessed us in Christ with, he goes on, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I think what Paul means by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place, I won't get ahead of myself here, but that's with everything necessary for peace with God. And he will describe those in the verses we probably won't get to this Sunday. Look at 1-4-A. He says, even as He chose us in Him. I, what, what Calvin says at this point, he says, For if we are chosen in Christ, it is outside ourselves. It is not from the sight of our deserving. In short, the name of Christ excludes all merit. He goes on, when He says that we are chosen in Christ, it follows that in ourselves we are unworthy. So God's choosing of us in Christ means that there can be no way elsewhere. Now I want to step aside for a second. I want us just to kind of feel some of this tension. On one side of the tension is, the pride of autonomy and praiseworthiness that I might be, that I might by my own strength choose the Father. Right? There's a pride that comes with that. I don't know if any of you struggle with that. I struggle with that. On the other side, the joy that by His sovereign free will He has chosen a people in Christ to be in Christ when they could not choose on their own. Oh, but if I can choose on my own. I must, I must be pretty good for the kingdom of God, right? Now, I think we could go on and on about why we need God to choose a people. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things. That's a pretty good one. Um, it don't take you long, I think, in Scripture to figure out the depravity of man, even though we tend to struggle with that one greatly. But next... 
I want us to see as we work through this to see the character of God displayed as Paul tells us about God's electing. I want us to see the marvelous character of God is displayed in election. First of all, see God's mercy and grace. See God's mercy and grace. Ephesians 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has given us every spiritual blessing. And I did get ahead of myself a little bit, but every spiritual blessing equals everything spiritually needed for the peace spoken of back in Luke. Everything we need for peace with God is given to us by the Father in the Son and through the Son. Everything needed, including the primary and foundational choosing of us by the Father. Think of it this way. All the blessings for being right with God have been mercifully and graciously placed in our hands by the Father who chose us to this. Our hands lay open and empty. He is the one that places every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in our hands. Next, seek God's holiness and blamelessness. In verse 4, it says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God's choosing is not just to simply be His children in the ways we often think of. To us, a child is a child, no matter how they act, right? This is my child. And I know they're a terror, but they're still my child. But for God, there is a necessary ethical quality to His children. There's a necessary ethical change that happens in His children. They are to be marked by holiness and blamelessness. Now, yes, positionally, now don't take that metaphor that I just or that example too far, because yes, positionally, no matter what happens, well, I so hate to say it that way, but uh, anyways, if you have questions about that, we can get to that later. Because <laughs> I just too many words to explain that for right now. Let's leave it this. God's children, it's necessity that they become holy in, in increasing measure and become blameless in increasing measure. They are marked by holiness and blamelessness. Why? Why? Because God's children reflect the character of their Father. Right? Be holy, for I am holy. First Peter. Why are we holy? Why should we be blameless? Because God is holy and God is blameless. You know, just an implication, that means God is blameless and holy in election. Whether we think Him to be so or not. They're marked by holiness. So see God's holiness and blamelessness. Next, see God's love. See God's love. 
Again, these are all characteristics of God, at least in this passage, that we see displayed in God's election. Not election to an office, but His electing action. Ephesians 1, 4, the end part, says, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Now just for maybe some of you nerds out there, in love is before the five, because in the Greek, in love can either go with the verse that follows, or it can go with the phrase that just ended. It literally can go either way. There, so some people take this as we're to be holy and blameless before Him in love. Some people take this as in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. I think it goes with the one following. Either way, it's not going to change a whole lot. Nevertheless, you see God's love. God's love is displayed in His choosing and here in the determining of the specifics of our destiny. That's a big deal. When we think, we spend so much time thinking about the future, worrying about the future, planning for the future, having dreams, maybe having no dreams for the future, but we think about the future. But here we see God's love is displayed in His choosing and here in choosing us to a very certain and specific destiny. Let me ask you a question. This what plans do you have for your life? Hmm. What plans do you have? Plans for a nice house. Plans to have kids that would be well behaved. Those are not bad things. But again, where are our plans that are marked by brilliance and luster? The Father's plan for you is that you would be adopted as a son of the king, that is his plan for you. That you, like his plan for you in love would be that you would be royalty of the highest sorts. Next we see God's sovereignty. See God's sovereignty. Beginning in verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. He chose free of our bidding, and He chose constrained only to His own will and nothing else. God chose. He did not choose because he thought, oh, that person's going to choose me, so I'll go ahead and put my mark of approval on him. Just blows my mind. That's what I, that's what I grew up believing. Yeah, God predestined. God chose me, but God chose me because he knew I would first choose him. That makes me shudder thinking of that. Now he chose free of anything that I done, which is glorious in both directions, right? He chose not because I was going to be great, and he also didn't choose 
like didn't pass me over because my sins were so great. Or that my sins would be so great. He chose based upon his will. We see his sovereignty. So much more we can say to that, but on time. Now, now this hope, right? So as we come to the end of the sovereignty, now this, this character and seeing the character of God. This hope to which we hope for didn't just appear out of nowhere. But I hope you see that what we see here is Paul begins to teach us about God's electing action. What we see is God's character is all worked throughout this. And ultimately, I think what we see is that hope, as it avails to men, becomes a reality in God's electing of His people. That without God's electing, His people have no so really what we talked about the first week in the series was, what is hope? Just in general, what is hope? And the second week we talked about how we are hopeless without God. How we are depraved in many ways. We cannot, by any means of our own, made, be made right with God. This week then we're saying if we are to be made right with God, that God must choose. And that God did choose. Out of God's heart comes the plan that He would save a people unto Himself. That He would choose them. That in response to His choosing, that they would choose Him. And then comes God's plan to provide for this hope. That's what we're not going to get to in in Ephesians here. But going on and look at verse 7 through 8. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. What we see there is how God is making this a reality. How God is going to carry out His will in saving those whom He has chosen. God's provision will be redemption through the blood of His Son. What I want you to simply see is this, that, that hope for eternal enjoyment of God began in the heart of God, resulting in the electing action of God. Let me say that again. I want you to see that our hope for being right with God, peace with God, eternal enjoyment of God, began in the heart of God, the character of God, resulting in the electing action of God. That God chose. I mean, just think about this, church. Did God have to choose anybody? Did He? No? Hmm. Categorically, God chose two things He chose His people, and He chose His Son to die for His people. The electing of his people and the electing of his son to die for his people. Like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Christ be my first elect, he said. Then choose our souls in Christ our head. Christ be my first elect, he said, God said. Then choose our souls in Christ our head. God our head, choose our souls. 
praise God that hope is not a theoretical idea, but instead it was a reality that burst forth from the heart and mind of God. I hope you're beginning to see that this hope in Christ, this hope in the Father's work, is a hope worthy of our full acceptance. Now I want to finish out our time here bringing us back to what is Paul saying that we're hopeful for? What are we hopeful for? I want us to be reminded of exactly the hope to which we are called to, that God has predestined us for. A little bit of a distinction between election and predestination. Election is God's choosing, and predestination is God choosing the destiny of those whom He chose. So there's, there's a little bit of a distinction, all they really go really, although they really go hand in hand. But God predestined that our hope would become a reality. You see that. I hope you see that this morning. So let's go back to some questions I asked a little bit earlier. Okay? One is this. What do you find yourself hoping for this Christmas? What are you hoping for? What would be so delightful and joyful if it were to come true? PS4 or something like that I thought I heard on a Tuesday night, you know. I was walking through the mall and a guy looks at me and says, uh, do you have DirecTV? Or Direct DirecTV, it was Dish, Dish. And I'm like, no, sorry, just got rid of DirecTV and uh, cut the cable. And uh, he says, uh, well, if you sign up for us, I'll g- you can get a free $50 and a free PS4. And uh, I thought, uh, wow, that's awesome. And uh, you can have my all my credit cards in my wallet right now. Because that's what you're going to get for the next few years when I sign my life away. What are you hoping for, though, this Christmas? What, do you, what does it be so delightful if it would come true? Let me ask you this. What are you fighting hard to attain? Now, obviously, I'm pushing for something more here than just some gift, some physical, material gift. I want you to press into your heart, going, what are you hoping for? What in the future? Like this, yes, we find ourselves in Christmas, but over this next year, if it was to happen, what would, what would be, what would just captivate your heart if it was to happen? Not that that thing's a bad thing or it's a bad goal to have. It's not my point. But my question is, are you placing your hope there? And is that a hope worthy of your attention? Full attention. And instead, of followers of Christ, if indeed we are, we would not be satisfied with little hopes. We'd only be satisfied with the hope that would be found, that we could be found, that we would be found, that we'd be currently found in Christ, that we'd be found loving Him and bearing His image for His name's sake. That is a hope that we should have. Our hope is that we would see the completion of this, that us walking holy and blameless, bearing the name of our Savior, that we would see this to completion, that there would be an end to that as far as this side of eternity, that, that, that God would complete that work. 
I want to show us that our hope, our hope of doing this, has been predestined by the Father. Like, like, do we understand that for those whom God has chosen, He has predestined you to be found in Christ for all eternity? Do you realize that? I mean, just let that soak in for a second. The creator of the universe has determined that your destiny would be in Christ. I know, I know, I just gotta stop for a second. I know these thoughts just so go against the grain of our our being. Like, I know, I know. But I just want us to see God, look what God has predestined us two. First of all, adoptions, adoption as sons. Think about that. Adoption as sons. Yes, adoption as the children of God, but I think adoption as sons is strategic. The son, particularly the firstborn son, stood to inherit everything. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Think about this. As adoptions as sons, we become, He becomes our Lord and we become His servants, right? I mean, just what a glorious thing would that be? What if that was all adoption meant? Was that we got to be servants of the King, the Creator, the Lord of this world? What if it just meant that we just got to be servants in His house, that we could carry food into the throne room, that, that we could speak to Him, that we, could, that we could just be the cook in the kitchen, that we could be the guard at the door, that we could clean the carpets and roll them out for him as he gets up from his throne or that we could carry the train of his robe if that was all we got to do that he chose us to do that but in his great love he makes us more than just servants you know that song, I am a friend of God, right? I am a friend of God. What if, I mean, think about that. What if we were just a friend? What's Paul say? He makes us his children. Now last night, I had some dear friends, new friends, but some very dear friends in our house for dinner last night. They're friends, and they're welcome, and we want to be hospitable with them, and care for them, and make them feel welcome. And but what if, what if they were family? He makes us his children. He welcomes us into his presence. Not just as servants, not just as friends, but as children. Those who were once his enemies are now his children. 
He chose that for you. He chose you to that. Like the intimacy of the Trinity, we are called into that. I know, I know, I know. Like, we don't, under, we don't understand. I don't understand what all that means, but I know that it's good. I want you to think about your relationships that you struggle with just on a daily basis. The intimacy that we desire to have, but we struggle to have with other people. Let's take a few moments to just, I, I know this just has some application for some of us, but even at reno- renovation, that, you know, this past year has been a little bit of a tough year. We've had a few people leave. That puts pressure on intimacy. It puts a lot of pressure on relational intimacy and relational closeness. There's always the, f- why? We, why, why, why? Because there's always the fear of abandonment, the fear of betrayal maybe, or the fear of just, they're just being gone. You look at the person next to you wondering, will they be here tomorrow? Will they not be here tomorrow? So then what happens is you find yourself struggling to have deep, flourishing relationships with others. That's tough. But I want to remind us as Christian, your relationship with the Father is one as a child of the King. One where the Father is perfectly committed to you and one where the Father will keep you committed to Him. He has a plan for you and a plan to keep you. He paid the price of His Son for this. I read that J.C. Weil quote last week. That He paid such a dear price He will not so easily let us go. But if you can write down quick enough, I want you to write this down. When the intimacy with the Trinity as children of the Father becomes enough for you, you will be able to freely give of yourself to others. When the intimacy with the Trinity as a child of the Father becomes enough for you, you will be able to freely give of yourself to others. This has even been the journey of my own heart over the past number of months. I know, I took adoption and helped us apply that to a very specific struggle. The picture is so much more glorious than even just that. Okay? Adoptions of sons. What next? What next? What next has He predestined us to? What has He chosen us and then designed and planned for us? Second was that we'd be objects of His grace. What I mean is we be, we've become, church, the target of His grace. If you've ever shot a gun, if you've ever shot a bow, you have a target, right? You should have a target. If not, what are you shooting at? You know, you have a target and you shoot at that target. And <laughs> We've become God's target of His grace. Yes, God has a, a general grace that He has given to the whole world. Just the fact that we've not destroyed each other completely yet is God's grace to the entire world. But I'm talking about a unique grace that He's given to His people. We've become objects of His grace, objects of His unique grace, objects. We've become receivers 
of His grace. Look at verse 1, 6, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. All that we have, every blessing, right, is from God. The greatest grace the Father could ever show you is the choosing you into salvation. This is what Paul just said. God has predestined us to adoptions as son. And he says, praise him for this grace. Praise him for this grace. And I ask the question, why do we stand at the manger side cherishing our own graces that we have to offer when the Father has already given you the grace of eternal life in the Son? Christian, you are the object of God's grace. A grace receiver. He's chosen you for that. He's chosen you to that. Now, I want us to step aside for just a second before we get to the last point here. All this begs the question, and I just can't talk about this subject without bringing this up, but what does this mean for those that God has not chosen? Just, just some quick thoughts here, okay? Just some quick, quick thoughts. First of all, we do not know who God has chosen and who He hasn't. We don't know. We don't know. I think we should follow Christ's commandment to take the gospel to the world and make disciples of all nations. We should do that. Trusting that God has chosen some, but not trusting that we know who He has chosen. Because we don't. Second of all, if the thought of election so disturbs your mind that you can't enjoy the grace of God revealed to you in this passage, then maybe there's something else in your hand that you deem more worthy of worship. Paul says, worship God because of this. Worship Him because of this. So sure, yes, sure, yes, maybe this is a struggle to understand, a struggle to think through. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you can still struggle with what's taught in this passage and worship God at the same time. Don't miss the wonderfulness of this truth. Your hope depends on it. And then the second kind of big thought I would say is that no one knows, again, not even the person who is not following Christ. We, we do not know. So if you're in this room, you don't know if you're a follower of Christ or not, and you want to be, and the reality is, is until you've been redeemed, you don't know whether God has chosen you or not. But what we do know is that there's no hope for salvation apart from God. You know, kind of think of it this way. No one really knows whether or not God has chosen them until after they choose God. And then, I think later, most people at least, I know I did, realize that I chose God because God first chose me. That I walked into God's presence because He's the one who opened the door to me, not me open the door to Him. I mean, right? We think about how we teach our kids salvation, right? Just, just open up the door of your heart to Jesus. I think more in the terms of the pillar and buttress of the truth of the church, that behind it is the glorious King, and, and He opens the door. We see His majesty, and we can do nothing but walk in. But the reality is this, God, God has provided a way 
for those whom he has chosen. And he draws them to the salvific truth of his work in Jesus Christ. The saving truth of his work in Jesus Christ. He draws men to that. Draws women to that. Lastly, what has God predestined us to? We talked about adoption of sons, objects of His grace. He has drawn us to praise Him. He has drawn us to praise Him. Look at 1.6. He says, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Alright, church, follow with me here as we wrap this up. All of this, right? The character of God birthing forth the reality of hope. The choosing of some to hope. The predestining of some to eternal sonship. All of this, all of this is for the praise of His worthiness. All of this is meant to captivate your heart and my heart with the magnificence of God. All of this is meant to cause your heart to treasure the gift of Christmas. All this is meant to draw your hope to hope Himself, Jesus Christ. All of this. The fact that God would choose some. Next week, we'll study just how God provided for the reality of those whom He has called to hope in His Son. So we look at hope in Christmas. I, I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, from everlasting, he's speaking about Christ here, He has not been a secret and a silent person up until this moment. That newborn child there has worked wonders long ere now. That infant slumbering in its mother's arms is the infant of today, but it is the ancient of eternity. That child who is there hath not made its appearance on the stage of this world. His name is not yet written in the calendar of the circumcised, but still, though you wist it not, his goings forth have been of old from everlasting. When God chose us in him, from eternity past, Christ was there, knowing every, every choice. God chose to save. He would die for that person. 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 And so my hope for us this morning is that, that our hearts would long for hope that is glorious, magnificent, infinitely beyond us, and that we would find this hope not in our ability to choose God, but first and foremost in God's choosing of us. The reality this morning is this, is that the gloriousness of this truth, that God would choose me to be His son, right? That God would choose you to be His son, to be His daughter, is such a heavy truth that there is simply no room in my hands and your hands for the worship of anything else. The certainty of God doing as He wills is so great that hope in anything else Hope that we would choose Him. Hope that, that he, we have what it takes. Hope that by my own doing I could have worked my way to God. And then hope in anything else just simply seems foolish. But the hope that we're called to, the hope 
that God chose some and God chose some with a plan and that God's going to carry that plan out. That's hope. You know, I have to share this brief story real quick. You know, I was in, I grew up in church. I wrote a paper in my undergrad about um, basically how predestination as as I would understand it today, how that was wrong. I wrote that in my undergrad. Um, I've since burned that paper. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's somewhere. I don't know where it's at, but somewhere in my past. I remember sitting in seminary, and my theology professor, Dr. Bruce Ware, is a gracious man, just walking us through the things of God from the Word of God, and we kind of get to this, and he just says, begins teaching, and I just kind of sat in the class, and he just went, my, what a little God I've been satisfied in. What a tiny God I've been worshiping. No wonder, no wonder my heart strays so much. And thus began kind of the journey in my own heart of, all right, well, I don't, this, this is a struggle. Right? It makes sense. You know, and I, and, I, and I stand before you, church, saying, this is the, the only thing worthy of our hope. I mean, think about it. If your hope is in yourself, how weak and frail that is. It might change tomorrow. So we want a big God, a strong God who will keep us post our decision. He will keep us until He returns. But when it comes to that choosing, we want to be worshipped for that. But that's, your hope in that is, is so frail. But your hope in God, that He would choose, that He would carry out the plan, that it's all at all, every last ounce of it depends on his hands that's a hope worth placing your hope in i'll pray for us this morning father i thank you for these truths from your word father i know our hearts are finite and prone to wander and i think our hearts if I could add a, something in parentheses on that song, prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander towards worship of ourselves. How do we do that? How is one of the ways we do that? We do that by claiming our own ability in choosing you, Father. But Father, you, you chose us. Father, those who are redeemed followers of Jesus Christ today, you chose them. You redeemed them. You drew them. You are keeping them. Father, please give us hearts that do not settle for such frail and weak and temporal hopes. But, Father, give us hearts that only settle for the hope that's provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Father, give us, give us a heart that desires for that kind of hope. Father, give us a heart that has bigger dreams than just the dreams that we might be sufficient. But a dream for finding only sufficiency in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, love you so much. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and drawing us to you. It's in your Son's name we pray.